Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Martin Arnold, our banking editor. And down the line from Madrid, we have Dara Quinn, an analyst at Namura. And also joining me from China down the line is Gabriel Wildau, our China financial correspondent. Today we'll be talking about Banco Santander, which has raised capital in a pretty swift and successful capital raising, and what that transaction means for the rest of the Eurozone banks. We'll also be looking at WeBank, the latest Chinese new banking launch, and also bonuses, both on Wall Street and in the City of London. First, though, to that Santander story. As I said, Dara Quinn from Namura is on the line from Madrid. Dara, it was a pretty successful transaction, wasn't it? This was a €7.5 billion capital raising done basically overnight. One of the biggest such accelerated book builds ever done, I think. Yes, Santander is one of the larger Eurozone banks, and they were able to tap into a sufficient amount of investor demand based on the discount of around 10% that they priced the transaction at. Yeah, so it was a balancing act to some extent, as, as I said, is a very large transaction, but that 10% discount is, I suppose, far higher than you'd normally expect for an accelerated book bill. Though the bank would stress, well, if you compare it with a rights issue, then it's a far smaller discount. Yes, I mean, I think they would have been looking at how much capital they wanted to raise. And I suspect they would have had behind the scenes conversations or some indication from the ECB about a level that the new regulator would have been comfortable with. And then, you know, striking a balance between being able to do an accelerated book build or then having to go through a slightly more longer and arduous process of a formal rights issue. And of course, the calendar at the moment with Greek elections at the end of the month, making that a potentially more volatile or trickier situation to manage. I'm just going to bring Martin in on the conversation here because he was obviously reporting on this last week. Martin, what's your take on things? I just want to ask, Dara, if uh, you consider the accelerated book build a success because the bank raised €7.5 euros. So from that point of view, it was a success, but the shares fell almost 10% afterwards. So the bank is worth no more than it was before they raised €7.5 euros. Why do you think that is? Well, I think rather than just kind of looking at the technicals of the specific transaction over a few days, I think it is worth just kind of stepping back and saying, well, Santander's capital ratio was falling behind the peer group. And there is a new regulator now in Europe. Santander had no trouble passing the stress test. But I think there was a sense that, you know, the gap between Santander and, and the peer group was getting too big. So that, you know, realistically, at some stage, they were going to have to do something to raise capital. And in that context, being able to reach what I would say now is, is a, an appropriate level of capital for Santander or, or one where they can start building on again without too much pressure. Um, you know, being able to do that with an accelerated book build rather than going through a rights issue, I would say that would deem that as a, as a successful transaction. 
How do you gauge this in the broader context? This is a pretty dramatic early move from Anna Bottin, the new Santander chairman who took over from her father only a few months ago. It's the latest example of her kind of breaking with the past. Her father was notoriously coy about raising fresh capital and resisting pressure from investors and regulators to do that. How do you judge her first three or four months in the job overall? Yeah, she has made a strong start. I mean, there was the initial changes to some of the governance structures of the board level, followed up by then nominating a new senior management team, CEO and CFO, and then, as we said, raising capital, and then also, importantly, changing the dividend policy, or I'd say normalizing the dividend policy. So some of those issues were, you know, they'd had a very different view under her father. She's come in and made some relatively big changes. So I'd say quite a strong start and and showing that she's not afraid to make big decisions if she feels that they're the ones that Santander needs to make. And a final question for you, what do you think remains for her to do in terms of the big, I suppose, most of the obvious stuff has been done? What might be next? Well, I think that, you know, the, the biggest issue for them really is, while capital and dividend policy is important, but, you know, essentially it is managing a large retail bank with the presence across loads of different countries, different continents, different business cycles. So just the complexity of keeping a handle on risk, of keeping a handle on those different subsidiaries is, is a big enough job in, in itself without having to think about adding on new businesses or, or, or other issues. So I think just managing the bank on a day-to-day basis is really where the test of her management of the bank will come under more scrutiny. Dara, thanks very much for joining us. Martin, just to bring you back in for a moment, Santander's capital raising was obviously the first big thing we've seen since the immediate aftermath of the stress tests. Is it going to presage another round of capital raising from the rest of the Eurozone banking sector, do you think? There's lots of equity capital market bankers out there who certainly hope so, Patrick. I think in all likelihood, it's an encouraging sign for any banks that feel their capital ratio is a bit weak. The Spanish press is reporting that among the investors that bought some of these shares was George Soros, who apparently bought uh, 500 million euros worth of Santander stock. And given all the uncertainties over Greece's future in the eurozone, the lacklustre economic growth, the risk of deflation, doubts over the effectiveness of anticipated QE, quantitative easing by the ECB, the tensions in Russia, etc., etc., the fact that the biggest eurozone bank is able to raise that much money is an encouraging sign. And the other factor is, as we reported in this morning's FT, the ECB has now in the past month written to all of the 130 biggest banks in the single currency area to specify their individual capital requirements that it is setting for them. And so the banks have received that and they've got until the end of this week to appeal against that if they think it's too high or too low. I doubt any of them will argue it's too low. And so you could well see as a result of that more banks following in Santander's footsteps. We will see. We should move on to our second topic, which takes us to China and a very interesting launch of a new banking initiative there called WeBank, which has been launched by the local internet company Tencent. We have on the line Gabriel Wildau, our correspondent in China. So, Gabriel, thank you very much for joining us. What's behind this move? I mean, it's something that obviously in the West as well, we're seeing tech companies get more into financial services, but so far at least they've kind of held back from going into mainstream banking. This goes a step further. Yeah, well, small private companies in China have long complained that they can't get loans from the big state-owned banks. 
uh, which prefer to lend to larger state-owned companies. And China's leadership has acknowledged the need for greater competition in the banking sector. And the former prime minister said quite bluntly a few years ago that the biggest banks earn profits too easily and that they have a kind of quasi-monopoly status. So there's an effort now in a variety of ways to try to inject more competition into banking. But the main way that's happening is through deregulation of interest rates, which is supposed to force the established players to compete with one another and become more aggressive at seeking out new borrowers. But in addition, regulators are moving to lift barriers to entry for new players, and they're doing that through this pilot program where we've seen Tencent, the internet gaming and social media giant, along with a group of other privately owned companies, including Alibaba and other e-commerce firms, win banking licenses as part of uh, consortiums of private firms. And the hope is that they're going to um, force the traditional players to become more customer service oriented and, and then on the lending side to serve some of these underserved small private borrowers. So, yeah, it's a very interesting initiative. The Tencent initiative, the WeBank thing, which is basically what's been launched in the past week, very interesting that the Chinese Premier himself was at the launch, which kind of echoes your point about the leadership of the country being very keen on innovation in this area. How big can this initiative get? How big could WeBank get? What are their aims and, and targets? Well, in the initial stage, I don't think we're going to see Tencent and Alibaba and the other internet companies grabbing major market share from the incumbent players. But we've already seen that Alibaba and Tencent have had good success in diverting deposits away from the traditional bank through their online platform. They offer these money market products that already act very much like deposits. And these products are linked seamlessly with the social networking and the e-commerce services that Tencent and Alibaba offer. And so if they're very convenient to use as compared to Dealing with the traditional bank often feels like dealing with a government bureaucracy. There's many things that you can't do unless you show up to the bank in person. And you may wait in a long line you know, behind a very old lady who isn't even comfortable with an ATM machine. So there's no question there's a niche, there's a market available for a kind of a more streamlined, a more modern type of a banking service. And in fact, McKinsey came out with a report just this past week where they surveyed household depositors and they found that two-thirds of them would strongly consider using the Internet bank. And a final point, how would you expect this bank to work in terms of funding and so on? I mean, is it simply a matter of taking deposits and lending it out largely to SME businesses? How will the balance sheet of this kind of bank look? Well, Chinese banks are subject to a maximum 75% loan-to-deposit ratio. So they'll have to work to draw in customer deposits, and that will be a challenge uh, when they're dealing with the strong retail deposit network of the physical branches of the incumbent players. But they will be able to fund themselves to a certain extent through issuing bonds and, and through money market borrowing as well. On the lending side, we can expect them to focus on smaller borrowers. Uh, Tencent has said they want to do that, and that's why the Premier Li Keqiang was there advocating, because that's his priority is to, to deliver more lending to those types of companies. And the hope is that they're going to be able to use their big data, to use their trove of user data to try to select borrowers who are going to pose a relatively low credit risk. And they'll have insights into small business borrowers that maybe the traditional banks don't have. Well, it's a very interesting initiative, which we and I'm sure the, uh, the Western tech companies will be following closely. Gabriel, once again, thanks very much for joining us.
On to our third topic, and Martin, you had a piece in the FT on Monday about bonuses looking like it's not going to be such a great year for bankers either on Wall Street or in the City of London. That's right. We've been hearing from several of the biggest banks on both sides of the Atlantic that their bonus pools will be either flat or down, probably slightly more generous in Wall Street than in the City of London, where there's a pretty widespread doom and gloom about the bonus pools, particularly given the lacklustre performance of some of the big investment banks that are based here in the city, and also the impact on those bonus pools of deductions that are expected from the big fines for manipulation of the foreign exchange market that were paid towards the end of last year. So that will hit the likes of HSBC and Royal Bank of Scotland. And some of the American banks who are involved in that as well, so JP Morgan, Citigroup, Bank of America. There's also in the UK and in Europe the question of the EU bonus cap, which limits bonuses to twice the fixed pay of bankers, which is something that American banks do not have to worry about except for their employees in Europe. So not a great outlook then for UK-based bankers in particular. How much of an effect do you expect from the upcoming general election in May? I mean, is that going to, do you think, enliven politicians, despite perhaps a fall-off in bonus levels, to bring this to the fore in terms of the, the debate? Yeah, I, I think it will. We spoke to some of the senior politicians in the opposition Labour Party, which is proposing as part of its manifesto to introduce a one-time tax on bankers' bonuses. So it's looking for every opportunity to justify that policy. And they're sharpening their knives ahead of this year's bonus season. And there will be some big bonuses paid, even though overall the bonus pools are expected to be down. The, the One of the biggest paydays will be for Antonio Horta Osorio, the Portuguese-born chief executive of Lloyds Banking Group, who has engineered a pretty remarkable turnaround in the fortunes of Lloyds. Uh, share price has trebled. It's returned to profit. It's going to restart paying dividends this year. The government has sold nearly £7.5 billion worth of shares in the bank, you know, recouping that from its bailout during the financial crisis. So lots of positive things, but still his overall pay packet, the amount he takes home this year is expected to nudge beyond £11 million. So that's an eye-popping amount of money in this political climate. That and other big awards are likely to generate some negative headlines. However, well justified they may be. And especially for Lloyds, I suppose, which remains at least part state-owned, the Labour Party might well latch on to that. Yeah, and for Royal Bank of Scotland, which is 80% owned by the government, almost any bonuses they pay will be controversial, even though their bonus pool is expected to be down, as I said. Drama ahead. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin here in the studio and also Dara Quinn from Numura in Madrid and Gabriel Wildow, our correspondent in China. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corian provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.